This time of year always reminds me of a job I used to have collecting leaves. Forget being a GP, back then I was raking it in. Yeah, I feel like we could all do with a bit more humour in our lives at the moment. So this is Friday, the 18th of November. This is the Hot Topics podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining us on the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. Neil Tucker here once again to take you through the next 20 minutes or so, give you a bit of an update on what's happening in the world of general practice. So I'm doing the podcast somewhere slightly different today. Uh, No, not Barbados. I'm doing it from my kids' bedroom. They're at school, thank goodness, otherwise this would be carnage. But we've got builders in today. Well, I say in, they are outside the front of the house repairing a wall. This wall is a nice analogy for the state of the NHS at the moment. So uh, it was already in a state of decay when we moved into the house eight years ago. And we've steadfastly done absolutely nothing about it in all that time. It's now crumbling to bits and it definitely needs repair. In fact, it's being replaced not suggesting the NHS should be replaced. That is where my analogy falls down. I really haven't thought this through very hard. But anyway, there's builders out the front. There's a lot of banging. There's a lot of music. And I've had to move away from there. But I think it's going to work out okay because you can basically do a podcast anywhere. You just need a microphone and a laptop and everything works out fine. As my gran used to say, a change is as good as a holiday. She also used to say, take everything with a pinch of salt. She was a lovely lady, made a terrible cup of tea. Now, there are things I need to mention. I've written them down today. Um, I'm, I'm becoming quite professional at this, would you believe? So firstly, sound quality. If you were one of the 500 people that listened to the last podcast within the first two or three hours of it coming out last month, it's been four weeks now, I know, apologies, time has been moving on, been really busy, um, then you would have noticed that the song sounded freaking terrible. I still don't really understand what happened. I am but an amateur at this and I try and do all of this podcast on a Friday morning. It doesn't leave a lot of margin for error. So um, this will make make no sense if you listen to the podcast like uh, after Friday afternoon where things sounded fine and we kind of repaired everything. But um, basically, if you listen to the song and it sounds terrible, we fixed it. Go back and listen to the song again. Or don't. I'm not here to tell you what to do. You can make your own decisions. Uh, But if you do want to listen to the song again, it won't make your ears bleed now. Next thing I need to tell you is that we have a new segment on the podcast. Yes, I know. Again, we're going all professional doing segments. And this segment is called Just One More Thing. It is where I am going to be interviewing a range of different primary care based experts in various fields. And we're asking three questions. One, what do we need to know about in primary care related to your field? Number two, what do we need to know that secondary care is up to in your field? And number three, what does the future hold for managing people with the conditions related to your field? So uh, today we are going to have an interview with Sarah Davis. So Sarah Davis is a GP in Cardiff. She works with the MB Medical team. She is an expert in diabetes. Her CV is so long that it actually makes me frankly slightly uncomfortable talking to her. I am so intimidated but we have done an interview today. That will be at the end of the podcast. What next do I need to remember to say? Upcoming NB courses. So tomorrow 
I mean, you could be listening to this months and months after I've recorded. So tomorrow is largely a, uh, an abstract concept. But tomorrow is Saturday, the 19th of November. We're doing our new updated urgent care course, all new material. So that's a live webinar. Um, so do join us for that online. It will, of course, be available on demand um, sometime shortly after we've done it. So if you're interested in that, but you can't catch the live day tomorrow or this is well after that and in which case it's largely irrelevant but you will still be able to watch it on demands aka um, nb the netflix of medical education i should qualify that you know like early netflix when netflix still had loads of high quality stuff on rather than just filling it up with loads and loads of really mediocre crap following weekend we've got another live um, hot topics course our latest autumn winter 2022 23 hot topics course and there's millions of stuff online so just um, everything will be on demand do check it out in research today we're going to think about continuity a couple of papers from the bjgp and then we're also going to have a think about maternal death rates uh, in different european countries that's just been published in the bjgp very topical given the issues that we've that have been exposed around the UK over the last few years. And I think we'll steer clear of politics. Uh, we had this awesome statement yesterday, of course. Most of us are going to be paying more in tax over the next four or five years. Some of that will go to the NHS, an extra five billion. I mean, five billion is a lot of money. But in the grand scheme of the NHS, which I think is England alone, it costs almost 140 billion per year. What do you get for an extra 3%? A bit of extra mortar on the top of the wall, but maybe you can't afford the bricks. Regardless, the patients still uh, keep coming and general practice stays open. It's easy to let everything be a bit doom and gloom, but we don't want that on the podcast. So I'm going to do another joke. So these are not my jokes, by the way. I've ripped these off. This is from a guy who's on Twitter called at dad joke man. It feels a bit like he's the only thing on Twitter that isn't just pure misery. I should probably follow some more light-hearted people. Anyway, um, this is the next joke. So this one actually has a, a, a general practice theme. I went to the doctors yesterday wearing creased clothes. They said I had an iron deficiency. Ah, if only all problems could be sorted by just sending them for a trip down to Curry's. Okay, let's focus on the research for a little bit, shall we? So first, these papers on continuity in the BJGP. There's, of course, been a lot about continuity over the last year or so. We talked about a previous paper in the BJGP demonstrating the benefits of continuity for our patients. The problem we've got here, of course, is the obvious disconnect between what the research is trying to tell us and what's going on in the real world, because most of us are having to cut back whether that's because we're burned out, because the intensity of days is too long, whether it's because you've got pension issues, whatever it may be, the the idea about the traditional general practitioner who is in practice every single day, five days a week, is dead. That is long gone. But as Ewan Lawson, the editor of the BJGP, points out in his editorial, in fact, as they pointed out in the paper, in Norway where this research was done, GPs aren't always working five days a week. So the regular GP tends to work in small group practices of three to six doctors. And also they uh, they do additional roles, just like we do here in the UK. And so they're often present in the practice three to four days a week, not all the time Monday to Friday, not the weekends. So the first paper, which is uh, Measuring Continuity of Care in General Practice, a comparison of two methods using routinely collected data. 
looked at using the usual care provider score. I think this is what the government have suggested they may use to measure continuity in practices in England and applied it to over 100 practices in East London. Probably the key finding in the study is that smaller practices correlate with better continuity, which of course is another disconnect from what we're seeing in the reality of general practice right now, where we're we're seeing lots of smaller practices really struggling and going under. The other big correlation was, perhaps unsurprisingly, down to um, practice demographics. So if you have an older population, if you have people with greater levels of multimorbidity or mental health problems, then that spurs more continuity. The second paper, General Practice and Patient Characteristics Associated with Personal Continuity, has a, a very similar findings, albeit approached in a slightly different method. The authors of this paper found that a larger number of usual GPs working in practice and greater use of GP locums was associated with lower personal continuity. While the longer you'd been registered at a practice, the greater your level of personal continuity there. I think a lot of this makes us consider what continuity has to be. And I don't necessarily think it needs to be exactly the same GP every single time you go to the doctors. It can be continuity between the team. That's very powerful. In fact, we've obviously been doing that for years between GPs and practice nurses, midwives and health visitors, social workers. We all have different skill sets. We all need to apply those to help with different problems, but it also works best when we come together and we can discuss those and share what's going on with our population. It may be possible in larger practice to have structures in place to help with organisational continuity, but I still think it's going to be a lot more difficult than in a traditional general practice where you can all sit round a table, have a cup of tea and at a practice meeting. As the editorial notes, wouldn't it be great if policymakers were to acknowledge the benefits of continuity rather than focusing so much on access then maybe they could appreciate the benefits of smaller practices and trying to support that as a concept rather than pushing for ever more amalgamation. And then quickly, we're going to have a think about maternal mortality in eight European countries with enhanced surveillance systems, a descriptive population-based study. So this is this BMJ paper on maternal mortality. So the authors collected data over a three-year period in France, Italy, the UK, and then for five years in Denmark, Finland, the Netherlands, Norway, and Slovakia. They looked at overall maternity mortality ratios and then also examined them in terms of various different demographics. The headline result here was that there's huge variation in maternal mortality between the countries, up to four times the difference. So in Norway and Denmark, they had between 2.7 and 3.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. In the UK, it was 9.6, only trumped by Slovakia at 10.9. As the linked editorial points out, some of the discrepancy may be down to the way that surveillance is conducted. And the UK does have one of the best surveillance systems in the world for maternal mortality. However, it would be a bold person, a bold move, probably an inappropriate one, for someone to try and argue that given the backdrop to all the issues that have been raised in the last few months and over the last few years with maternity services in the UK, that 
this is purely a reporting issue and not that there is some problem here. But of course, that problem is not a general practice. This problem is a system-wide issue. But I don't necessarily think that means that we in general practice can ignore it. It's worth knowing what tends to kill women during or after pregnancy. And in low-income countries, then that typically is hemorrhage, infection and preeclampsia. These are almost entirely preventable problems in adequately resourced health systems. In higher income countries, the two biggest killers actually change and it becomes cardiovascular disease and maternal suicide. So if we're thinking, what can we do in general practice to try and improve things, then these are two key areas that we can focus on, that we need to be aware of, that we need to be asking women about. We need to make sure that we are appropriately managing them. And by doing that, we're playing our part. We can make a, start making a difference in this area. Of course, in a lot of areas, general practice is losing its maternity care. It's been taken away and just been doing as a separate entity entirely. And I can see some of the rationales behind this. But you also wonder, juxtaposed against those papers on continuity, if actually this is a retrograde step and might introduce greater harms than it saves. I am, of course, speculating. No doubt someone will produce some data on this over the next few years. OK, that's enough of the research. Time for our new segment now. So just one more thing. So I'm joined today by Sarah Davis, who I know really well because she's one of my colleagues on MB Medical. But Sarah's got lots of other strings to her bow. So Sarah, pl please just introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, Neil. Hi, everyone. Lovely to be here. Uh, yeah, my name's Sarah Davis. I am fundamentally a GP. I work in Cardiff, but I have a special interest in diabetes. I actually did hospital medicine before I jumped ship into primary care and very much wanted to be a diabetologist, but actually now look after diabetes in primary care, because let's be honest, that's where most of the action happens anyway. Uh, so I have a role locally. Uh, I'm also the All Wales Lead for Primary Care for Diabetes, and I sit on the Primary Care Diabetes Society Committee. Um, I am, importantly, also an MB Medical Hot Topics presenter, as you say, Neil, and I lead our diabetes course. OK, let's get started then. So just one more thing. We want answers to three questions and we are quizzing leaders in their fields from primary care. You have that honour for diabetes, Sarah. We'll kick off with question one. So tell me one thing that we need to know about in general practice regarding diabetes. Well, uh, I was spoiled for choice here, really, Neil, but I think it would be remiss of me not to talk about SGLT2 inhibitors, because let's be honest, you cannot miss the buzz around them over the last few years. So I think the biggest thing for me that's really changed in diabetes care, in primary care over the last few years, is just this moving away the focus from just looking at HbA1c. You know, we've been really driven to focus just on that A1c number. But now I think there's a real shift in looking at trying to reduce people living with type 2 diabetes, overall cardiovascular and renal risks. So what I think we're now starting to see from the huge evidence base we've got around these new drugs, both the SGLT2s and the GLP1s, 
is a change from the evidence and indeed from national and international guidelines as well about using these medications beyond glycemic control. And what I think we're really starting to see now is a shift in using these groups of agents for organ protection. So seeing them much more like statins that we've been using for years to reduce cardiovascular risk for our patients, I think we're now going to start seeing that most of our patients living with type 2 diabetes are going to end up on these agents, especially the SGLT2s, I think, for organ protection regardless of their HbA1c. And I think that's quite a big change in the way that we are managing type 2 diabetes and a big shift in our mindset from that focus on HbA1c. Just picking up on that, do you think that HbA1c is still relevant then? Yeah, yeah. I think we need to be really careful because we know glycemic control is definitely still important. So in many ways, this is just making things even more complicated for us in primary care for managing diabetes, which frankly is complicated enough. Because, yeah, we still need to keep a mind on HbA1c. Good glycemic control, especially early in type 2 diabetes, definitely reduces especially microvascular complications such as retinopathy many years down the line. I mean, we had that UK PDS study that everyone's heard about. You can't go to a talk about diabetes diabetes without hearing about UK PDS, which did show that tight glycemic control, especially in relatively younger people, really makes a difference down the line, especially in those microvascular complications. And actually, at a recent conference, uh, they released 44-year follow-up data, which is pretty incredible for a study. And it showed that there is still a legacy effect 44 years later, that when people had early tight control, they still had less complications 44 years later than the people that didn't. So, yeah, we can't forget about glycemic control. It's just thinking beyond it as well. I mean, I have no doubt that we're going to see more and more about the SGLT2s. I mean, they're obviously really important for diabetes or type 2 diabetes, but we also know they're useful in renal protection, in heart failure. And I see that there was some study in the BMJ last week talking about them having a role in COPD as well. So uh, yeah, I'm, I think uh, it would be remiss of you not to have mentioned the SGLT2s. Okay, so question number two then. Tell me one thing that we need to know about that's going on in secondary care regarding diabetes. So I think one of the biggest changes in secondary care management of diabetes over the last few years has been around glucose monitoring. So we're all familiar with capillary blood glucose monitoring, but there has been a massive change, particularly in type 1 diabetes, but also increasingly in type 2 diabetes now, towards moving away from blood glucose monitoring to using non-invasive methods, so flash glucose monitoring, where patients have to scan a disc on their arm every so often to see what their blood glucose looks like, uh, or indeed continuous glucose monitoring. And now actually, particularly our patients who are living with type 1 diabetes under secondary care are almost all now using those new methods of blood glucose monitoring. Um, and we're starting to see it more and more for people living with type 2 diabetes who are on insulin. And actually, it's starting now to move into primary care as well. So I think that's been the biggest change is around the way that patients living with diabetes are monitoring their blood glucose. And quite honestly, Neil, I reckon that in five years time or so, capillary blood glucose monitoring will become pretty much a relic of the past. No doubt it's an amazing technology. Do you think we will be seeing it more in our patients with type 2 diabetes in general practice? Uh, 
Absolutely. And we're starting to see it already for our patients in primary care with type 2 diabetes on insulin. Um, you know, I've been using it locally in, in my practice, starting it in primary care. And it is so insightful. You know, instead of a patient coming in with, you know, kind of random capillary blood glucose readings on the back of an envelope, you know, with bits of blood and cereal all over it. Actually, now I have a look on the computer at someone's total blood glucose profile for the last however long and I can see exactly what's happening and it's completely changed the way that I'm able to have those consultations with my patients on insulin. So it, it's a real improvement and actually the data is now increasingly coming out around benefits uh, around glycemic control in type 2 diabetes for people on insulin but also around quality of life. It can make a significant difference and we think about for example patients who struggle to capillary blood glucose tests such as patients with learning difficulties, severe mental illness or and for example, frail patients in nursing homes, um, there's a real good use for less invasive ways of blood glucose monitoring for those patients as well. So, yeah, I think that, um, that this is definitely the future. Whether we see it in patients who are not on insulin, I don't know. It can still be useful. I mean, I think it can be very interesting. So I have to say I have tried them myself. And I tell you what, you do learn an awful lot about your body's reaction to your intake. Uh, for example, I will be forevermore, I think, avoiding eating pick and mix in the cinema as I saw my my, my readings shoot up into uh, scarily high figures after half a bag of pick and mix. Uh, so maybe around education, there's a role as well. I had a very similar experience when a friend had gestational diabetes and she started doing finger prick tests and we went round her house and we all got a, a, a takeaway Chinese. There's quite a lot of sugar in Chinese. You should have seen my BMs just go boom, 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 boom through the roof. We did a couple of checks. The positive thing that I found was I then did like five to ten minutes of running on the spot and then kept on doing the, the finger pricks. And uh, it was fascinating watching it come down. But it would be even better if I could just do that with one of these flash glucose monitors. I've got quite a few patients who have type 2 diabetes and just a bit like you say, they're just more interested. So they've been buying them for themselves because, of course, this is not a prescription only device. Various companies do them. You just buy them through the website. I even saw one advertised before the Bake Off yesterday uh, when I was watching it online. So I think there's growing interest in this. Do you think we're going to see the NHS foot the bill for people with type 2 diabetes who aren't in one of those kind of higher risk categories who aren't on insulin or there's not necessarily quite such a compelling argument for why they'd need it? Uh, so the answer is sadly, probably not. You know, we have to bear cost in, in mind to a degree here, don't we? Um, and, you know, unless there's there's benefits to be gained, which we know there are in those certain groups, um, I suspect the answer is sadly not. Uh, you're right. Some people will self-fund it even just for a short period of time. Um, and that can be, I think, quite useful in itself. Uh, but I think uh, resources wise, this is not something we're going to use for everybody. Just those uh, those right groups where we've got the evidence that actually it can make a real difference. Okay, so question number three then. Tell me one thing that is pushing the boundaries of managing diabetes. So the, the background to this question, everyone, is that when I started this podcast four years ago, I, I actually meant to keep on doing something about future medicine. And uh, somewhere along the lines that kind of got lost. I think it's really interesting for us to look to the future to see where we're going to go in primary care, where we're going to go in medicine as well. So uh, what do you think, Sarah? What's pushing the boundaries of diabetes? The first thing I want to talk about is technology, not so much in primary care, but very much in secondary care. And it is closed loop systems. So this is incredibly cool. This is the closest that uh, we have gotten to essentially an artificial pancreas. 
So this is when you have a continuous glucose monitor, so that's monitoring blood glucose all the time, which is talking to an insulin pump. So we'll tell the insulin pump to give the correct amount of insulin depending on the blood glucose reading, very much acting like a fully functioning pancreas. Um, and these are happening. So uh, people have been doing DIY closed loops for a little while now, and now they are, they are available increasingly on the NHS as hybrid closed loop systems. So really making a massive difference, particularly people with type one diabetes, where we know actually the mental load of having to make decisions multiple times a day around your uh, insulin and around your carbohydrate intake and so on is massive. So uh, these are coming, hybrid closed loop systems. That is amazing. And you can see how that would make a huge difference, particularly if you're, let's say you're a 12 year old who's just been diagnosed with type one diabetes. You just got to get your head around the diagnosis. And then someone's telling you, you've got to do four times a day finger prick testing. You've got to manage your insulin. You've got to think about your diet. Everything's got to change. Instead, you can have a system that can basically measure and control everything for you. And you can just imagine how much better control that's going to be. And when you're talking about things like legacy effects, you can just see how that's going to be so advantageous. Yeah, no, absolutely. It'd make a huge difference, you know, especially, as you say, younger people to parents of children living with type 1 diabetes. You know, having these sort of systems in place uh, is amazing. They still have to do a little bit, so they still have to tell the pump what the carbohydrate intake has been, for example. It can't know that. But even that, I suspect, will, it will continue to emerge. And I think technology is probably the biggest thing for the future of, of diabetes care in general. You mentioned more than one thing. What's, the, yeah. what's next? Well, in primary care, you know that there are going to be more medications coming for managing people with type 2 diabetes, and they are, without a shadow of a doubt. So we've got GLP-1 agonists. We know about those. There are a triple, well, double and triple agonists on their way as well. So we've got GIP and GLP-1 dual agonists coming. We've got GLP-1, GIP glucagon agonists coming. You know, these kind of amazing therapies. And some of the early data shows that the HbA1c lowering is dramatic with these uh, these dual and triple agonists, but also that the weight loss associated with them is on a par with bariatric surgery. Um, where they'll sit on pathways, whether they'll be available in primary care, how expensive they'll be, we wait to see for the moment. Is it the answer to type 2 diabetes in primary care? Definitely not. The answer has to be upstream, doesn't it? It has to be at the beginning around prevention of type 2 diabetes, around support and particularly support with weight management, I think, for patients at diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. But I think also good to know that there is more coming around the prescribing in type 2 diabetes as well and more options for us and for our patients. That is fantastic. We're really interesting. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Neil. It's been an absolute pleasure. That wraps up our first Just One More Thing interview. I hope you enjoyed it. Big thanks to Sarah, who was my guinea pig for this. We've got lots more of these coming up over uh, the next few months. It won't be in every podcast, but, but we'll have them dotted around as I get to speak to more and more primary care experts. I hadn't planned this as a shameless plug, but it is fortuitous timing because we have our new Hot Topics in Diabetes course. Sarah's just updated everything. That's coming out on the 3rd of December. We'll be doing a live webinar that day. It reminds me, actually, our dermatology one is after Christmas. So keep a lookout in January for that. 
And I think that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. Hope you get to take a bit of a break and enjoy yourself. Have We all need to relax a little bit at every opportunity. And remember, you can get in touch on Twitter at GP Hot Topics, uh, on email hottopics at mbmedical.com, um, possibly Facebook if anyone else still does that anymore. I'll be back in two or three weeks. Thanks, everyone. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.